0: All right, I'm back. This is Travis Roder back here with Jeff Davis. Um, we're doing this not at 9:30 p.m., so hopefully we shouldn't sound so tired and dejected and everything else this time. Uh, Jeff had a work issue, but he powered through, and we're back here for this Baylor-TCU week. Jeff, how's it going?
1: It's going really well. You know, I, uh, I the best intro story I can say is I'm lucky to have my dad visiting me um, for for a long weekend. We're going to the Army Air Force game. Um, on saturday morning which is at ten thirty, that's going to be a lot of fun but my dad who is in his late 60s god bless him um is currently bumping la bomba and some 80s jazz and some 90s rock uh, on his laptop in our um <laughs> in our uh, dining room and so it's 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 an interesting experience i love my dad very much but yeah like you know your parents get a little older and say wow look at that that's actually happening so that's currently go that's currently where my life's at
0: where is that? Is that game in DFW?
1: Yeah, so it's at Sorry, Globe Park, I believe is the name of the new Ranger Stadium. The Rangers are absolutely terrible, so I don't know the actual name of the park, because yeah. they've gone through like 65 stadiums since I've been born. That's cool. Do, but yeah,
0: Do they always do that?
1: No, so uh, they the military academies try very hard to, to explicitly do games around the country for recruiting purposes to be honest it's it's not just Mm -hmm. it's not just about football when you play for an academy there's other obligations that those guys have so they are doing like they'll do a game in texas or they might do it like they do games in philadelphia or new york or whatever so they move around the country a lot um so that's a long way of saying that army air force is traditionally not played in dfw but it is this year
0: okay right on that's awesome that'll be fun um there's something about like you know when you're a fan and like I've been to, like, 95% Baylor games. It's fun to just, like, go see some other teams play sometimes, too. Just kind of enjoy the game instead of being stressed out about it.
1: Yeah, I'll also say that probably the game I've had the most fun at, the college game I've had the most fun at that was not a Baylor game, was uh, I got a chance to go up to see Army play Oklahoma. Um, I think that was in 2017 or 2018. I can't remember exactly. Oh, the yeah, year. the
0: game with, like, seven possessions. Yeah, that game
1: was seven. Yeah, <laughs> and that would have been... Because they played Baylor there the week after, so that would have been 2018 if memory serves. Um, yeah, that was the game with about seven possessions, and it wasn't even on TV; it was on pay per view. And I was actually there, and my dad, who's a who's a, normally a rather reserved guy, was actually leading cheers like in the third <laughs> quarter, and it just it was very surreal. Um, it was a lot of fun. So yeah, I love going to I love going to uh, USMA. I love going to uh, military academy games, and we'll get a chance to do that this weekend.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to get started here with the plan here is we're going to talk Baylor, Texas for about 10 or 15 minutes. I don't know why I'm putting out a time frame that we have to adhere to, but we're going to start with Baylor, Texas. Uh, Then we're going to talk about the Patterson firing slash whatever euphemism is being used now for mutually let go. Both decided they wanted to go on vacation or whatever it is. And then we're going to talk Baylor TCU. Uh, So Jeff, you know, big picture. What did you take away from the Texas game that we learned about Baylor that you might not have known before that game?
1: I think the thing, the two things that really stood out to me coming out of that game, uh, the first one was Baylor's defensive line played or really their defensive front. Their defensive front was outstanding. Uh, they going back to the Texas state game, you know, there was a lot of, um, Te- technical issues from a technique perspective they didn't necessarily look as athletically dominant as i had expected them to uh way back in whatever it was first week in september yeah uh, last mm-hmm. week of august they you know they weren't bad but they they were not nearly as impressive as i was expecting uh coming off of the buy they looked they looked really close to dominant And that I I was not expecting that much growth from the defensive line. What they were able to do against Robinson from a uh, gap control issue, I mean, they just, they really dominated that game. I mean, the story of that game was there, was the front's ability to just squeeze the life out of the Texas offense. And what.
0: So, Jeff, let me interrupt you real quick, Jeff. So, like, I talked, like, before the game, I talked about how much I love the Baylor defensive line and how they're playing. And I think you, like, largely. Agreed, obviously, but what what was it in this game specifically that you were like, okay, we knew they were really, really damn good, but this was the next level that I didn't expect.
1: So two things: the first one was a, was a consistent ability to uh, a consistent ability to hold up at the at the point of attack. So you know when they put three down linemen, when they put three linemen down, they ran a lot of tight or. Tight four, or Tulsa, as it often gets called. A tight is, you know, a B uh, is a four-eye. A four-eye is zero and a four-eye. And, you know, traditionally, you're just controlling those interior gaps. One of those two, usually towards the run strength, so wherever you're strongest on the formation.
0: So, 4-I, just so y'all don't know, basically zero just means you're directly over, over the center. 4-I just means you're lined up on the inside shoulder of the offensive tackle, so you can visualize what Jeff's talking about. Here. Yep.
1: Thank you, yes. So, yeah, when you get those guys lined up, a lot of times, you know, uh, Aranda's talked about this in the past, but... Baylor's Baylor's defensive linemen really play heavy and what I mean by that is they engage they you know they fire out low they get their arms out into the opposing offensive linemen's shoulders uh, right under their shoulder pads like into their armpits and their goal is to change or to challenge at the point of attack um that that offensive lineman. Can they control him? And Aranda talks about this a lot and defensive line coaches will talk about this a lot of do you play the hard shoulder or the soft shoulder? In the run game, you have to be able to control the hard shoulder. Where does the defensive where does the offensive lineman want to keep you out of? What gap do they want to keep you out of? In the in pass row situations, your defensive lineman wants to attack the soft shoulder because you're trying to get upfield. Um what what that means though in this instance is Baylor's defensive linemen on a play-in, play-out basis across the scope of the game consistently won those matchups. It just There were very few instances where you could look at Texas offensive linemen and go, Texas offensive linemen won that play. To dominate like they did in their one-on-one matchups uh, was not something, honestly, I expected coming in. I thought it would be a bit more of a draw. I thought they would have to be able to commit more uh, resources to the run game, to be honest. They really... Um, they did a lot of that, you know, they kept their linebackers up, they made their linebackers attack on play action, but they didn't have to do what they did against Iowa State, you know, against Iowa State, they had, they brought, Iowa State, they just brought the house in, in, in no uncertain terms, you know, they're trying to do all sorts of things around contain with, um, with uh, secondary guys trying to force the run outside, make the secondary guys tackle. They didn't really have to do that in this game. They were able to play Texas kind of straight up. Now, they played them aggressively, but they were able to play them straight up. There's a play that I believe that you linked to on one of your Twitter recaps where uh, I believe they had two tight ends to the boundary, and I think it was Petrie, his, his job is to get between those two tight ends, and Petrie, who's giving up, I mean...
0: 50 pounds at least.
1: Yeah, 50 pounds at least to each of those guys. So a combined, I mean, you're looking at like 300 pounds of loss and he buries both their tight ends on that play. And it's a loss of four because they can't get him moved off the edge. And I just, they played with a, they played with the 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 defensive line played with the technique that I wasn't expecting. And that allowed the, uh, that allowed the linebackers and Petrie to play with the physicality and an attacking style on pretty much everywhere that really allowed them to overwhelm. I think that's the right word. It really allowed them to overwhelm the Texas uh, offensive front. Um, They did not have a lot of answers in that game really at all throughout the course of the game and you just kind of... Texas... I think one of the reasons we saw that fake punk call, if I'm being... if When I thought about it more later on, is I think the reason we saw so much of that fake punk call or that we did see it was Sark knew that he didn't have a lot of options. Like, they were having to roll the dice with 50-50 shot plays. And a 50-50 shot play, if you convert 50% of them, which they did, you're, you're doing really well. And they just didn't... They weren't able to generate enough off of we talked you know we talked last week about their they're not good enough on their on their base bread and butter plays that was really the story after that first drive in in the third quarter they just were not able on their base plays to generate enough offense
0: yeah i think it's really instructive if if people want to look back to to know what Jeff's talking about here when he's saying like you know Baylor was able to play straight up and then he compared it to the Iowa State game which is a great comparison because in that Iowa State game um you know Baylor used one of their safeties like Down in the box at the snap, you know, Christian Morgan, Baylor's strong safety, was setting the edge on a lot of those plays. This game, Baylor was definitely keyed in on Robinson. They definitely were playing extremely aggressive on any sort of uh, play fake or you know, anytime the ball got put in his belly. But their safeties weren't at the line of scrimmage at the snap. They were relying, like you're saying, Jeff. Like that was what was really impressive. I I totally agree. Like the the defensive line dominated that way. The guys could rally to the ball. You know, linebackers just love to play free. And like you were saying, but Terrell Bernard and Dylan Doyle, they didn't have guys on them pretty much all day. And when they did get guys on them, it was a second or two after the snap. So that way they, that way they were able to generate a good angle or like um, build up a good head of steam. So that way it wasn't just an offensive lineman kind of immediately on them. So, yeah, that ability to just kind of play straight up. um yeah, I mean, I don't want to say it surprised me because I think we've seen just like continual improvement from the defensive line, but it was just good to see. I mean, Texas offensive linemen is, they're as talented as, as, as you're going to see in the Big 12. And for Baylor's defensive line, who's certainly very, very talented in their own right, but, you know, I, I guarantee you Texas fans and Texas coaches don't think that Baylor's defensive line should be able to just dominate them like they did. So really fun as a fantasy. And it's just, I think we talked about it before the game, too, you know, when you get that play up front it just makes everything so much easier, It makes it easier on the linebackers, it makes it easier on the safeties and it allowed them to just play with a kind of aggression um, that makes winning football really easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it, what about on offense? Uh, Baylor, Baylor offensively.
1: So, uh, you know, I made the mistake of tweeting um, tweeting without watching the, the actual game. Um, I was at my son's birthday party uh, at, at earlier in the day because my wife had asked me about over a month ago, you know, hey, when do you want to do this? When do you want to have your son's birthday party? And I said, well, let's do it at 11. You know, get through it in the day. You know, our sons, you know, anyone that has kids out there knows your nine-year-old's like a complete animal on the day of their birthday party. We'll have the party. They'll come down off of a high and just, you know, like veg out because they'll be so ecstatic. I'll be able to watch the game in the afternoon. It'll be great. And of course the game was scheduled for 11 o'clock. So I didn't, I, you know, I, I was, I had to watch it from, uh, don't really watch it, but I was at the birthday party for the first three quarters. So the only thing I saw were some uh, highlight clips and I made a mistake of, of uh, tweeting out that, um, you know, PK uh, Kwiatkowski had really had gotten the better of Grimes because on the two turnovers, they ran plays that I legitimately had not seen from them before. Um, they ran a Tampa two and they did some other stuff that wasn't quite a poach, but something I didn't recognize on their, on uh, Gary's two um, interceptions.
0: And to be clear, you tweeted this after the first half. Just to yes, I did. I tweeted this after stuff. the first half. Thank
1: you. And, yeah. At and least just, you
0: didn't tweet it after the whole game. That would have been even worse. <laughs> yeah,
1: after the whole <laughs> game. Yeah, I should have just waited and like looked at the tape instead of just tweeting like a moron. Uh, but I had done that. Uh, what really kind of what stood out to me? They really honestly did what I thought that they were going to be able to do in that game, particularly into the second half. They Texas linebackers just weren't good enough in that they're game and they're just yeah, they're some, sometimes sometimes it's really easy to say out loud and in this case they weren't good enough to win that game texas defensive line i think is good enough to win that game i think that they were particularly i thought sweat played really well collins um when collins comes out whoa he's so good he played he played too high in that game for a lot of it but you know early in drives especially when his technique is there in his 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 um his car I didn't say his cardio is all there, but it just it's easier to play with technique earlier in a drive as a defensive lineman. Um, because you're just not tired already. But when he came out low, he won a lot of his matchups. He played extremely well. When he came out high, he was able to get washed a lot. And as you saw kind of later on into the game, when their cardio got a little worse, they just they need their linemen to be so Talk about Texas, they need their defensive linemen to be perfect. And they're just not perfect. They just, they don't have the depth to be perfect. You know, they're playing Baylor, I think rotated more defensive linemen than Texas did in that game for the most part. I think Texas was really relying on about four to five primarily on standard downs. And, you know, those guys are playing a ton of snaps and they have to be perfect. And that eventually just doesn't hold up. And eventually it didn't hold up. And, you know, Baylor was able to kind of get away with the win. Um, Gary did not play as well as I thought he would. I think part of that is that Texas really dialed in to try to, they, they were deliberately trying to show stuff where they were going to go into the middle of the field. We talked last week about, uh, I didn't understand why they kept running a cover four. They didn't run a lot of cover four in this game as near as I could tell. It seemed like they were trying to get us to throw us. I'm not on the team. Forgive me. Um, they were trying to get Baylor to throw into the middle of the field. And, uh, when they thought they could generate that look, they wanted to throw something at Gary to try to generate it, generate an interception. They were able to do that twice, uh, once, once Baylor kind of figured out what they were doing, I think they were able to attack them in a little bit better uh, path, and between that and just executing better in the second half, they were able to kind of put it away. Uh, I one thing that is interesting is you know they they were basically two fumbled snaps away from I think really blowing the game open. I think I do think that for all the talk of like Texas dropping passes in the first half and not being able to put it away, Baylor. Didn't execute well offensively in this game, and uh, that honestly surprised me. I think this was their worst offensive performance since Oklahoma State. They just weren't they just weren't sharp for most of the first half. Lots of drop passes. Uh, I think they missed some blocks that they shouldn't have missed. There were some communication issues on some of the zone calls. Um, Texas did kind of what they usually do in terms of fronts and trying to cheat reductions and trying to get guys where guys lined up in a B gap but really he's attacking into the A and the offensive lineman has to know that. Um, And they just, the communication levels weren't quite where they needed to be. And all that being said, they still put 31 points on him and ran off three touchdowns. So... It's there's a lot higher that they could go, but I did think they played pretty well. I was honestly just surprised that the offense did not play a little bit better and I think if you got those guys in the room they would probably tell you the same thing they they think they should have played better in that game.
0: Yeah I did a, a Twitter video and then I wrote a post for our daily Bears about how Baylor really didn't have to reach for anything outside of their base offense in this game. Obviously they were in the trick play in the, in the red zone but it was really basically just front side wide zone mid zone. And so wide zones, when you're aiming wide outside the tight end, mid zone, you're kind of aiming outside of the uh, offensive tackle. And then they just did their typical stuff where they would call, um, call their cutback runs. Abram had a couple of huge cutback runs and then they run that, ran that backside speed option. And really they probably got 70% of their offense, if not more doing just those few plays and then running speed outs on the outside. And So for Baylor to put up I think they finished with like a 55% success rate or something in this game. It was crazy. I mean, a really, really good number. Basically, just doing stuff on plays that were all installed in spring ball, probably not even fall ball. Probably, like probably spring ball plays. Um, that that side of it is encouraging to me. I do think a big part of it is that Texas elected to sit back with two safeties basically all day, and I I think you know we've kind of tried to figure out why they would do that. You know, we talked about prior to the game, whether they were going to respect Gary from the first snap or not. And you said, you know, I bet they come, I, I bet they come out spinning down a safety and make Gary beat them. That is not what they did. Um, and I, it's kind of curious to me why they didn't. I mean, I think we both think that Gary would have, would have been able to make them, uh, would have been able to punish them. But for Texas to kind of just sit back there and let Baylor just run base, base run plays on them was pretty curious to me.
1: I right, One thing I'll say on that it's much more difficult if you're going to, if you're going to spin down, if you're going to spin a safety down, you're really committing prior to the snap. It's much more difficult to do any kind of disguise when you just bring that safety down. And that's, that's something that, you know, uh, PK or Kwiatkowski, um, I think really, Texas is defensive coordinator. Thank you. I think that he really relishes and like, doesn't want to give that up. And in fairness to him, like their ability to try to confuse, got them two interceptions and if you look at them in the first half like they did a great job in the first half like if you add everything up there's not much more you could have asked out of that performance I whether or not into the second half once they kind of got through the script should they have gone ahead and kind of tried to risk bringing someone down when they like could not get the stops that they needed I probably would have done it, but he's also paid a hell of a lot more money than me. And he he probably actually is, you know, he knows more about defense than I ever will. So, you know, what am I, (laughs) you know, what am I really trying to get on to him about? But I, it's, it's not a decision that I would have stuck with. I think that they thought that if they made the game simple for Gary, he was going to be able to probably out execute and beat him if they could, uh, if they could try to beat him from a middle perspective, they could kind of get in his head and force him to make some like, maybe not great decisions. And I think closer to honestly to the Oklahoma state game plan where he got off early and just wasn't able to really kind of get it back. His footwork was gone, kind of went away and he just, he couldn't quite pull it together in the back half. Um, so I, I can, I can kind of understand that, but in the second half particularly, I was surprised that they didn't. I was surprised that they didn't just say, okay, we're going to sell out on the run because it's clear that we're wiped. It's clear that we're tired, particularly on that last touchdown position. I mean, like they mm-hmm. looked, they looked the, on it, the best parallel. This is, I mean, this will be a nice segue into this week's game the last time I remember a defense looking that gassed was TCU in 2014, where in the fourth quarter, Baylor was just running on them. And like, they just, they had nothing. There was just no, there was nothing yeah. left for them. And that's, that's what it looked like for them defensively, like into the fourth quarter.
0: Yeah. And, and last thing about the Texas defense there is that I, I think the the constant struggle for first, first year coaches is you're not going to be able to be where you want to be as far as installing your system and expecting what you need out of guys in that first year. So it's a constant push and pull between do I do things that are going to make winning this game 5% more likely versus getting my guys to do the things that I want them to do so that we can be better at it next year. And obviously for Quick for Quickkowski, he wants that scheme to be look the same every down pre-snap and then move things post-snap. It didn't work versus Baylor, but you know, maybe all these snaps this year will give them good tape, and they'll be better at it next year. Yeah, so.
1: I could say that. I think you'll also, if you're a te- if you're a lone Texas fan listening to this, my assumption is that they will probably go pretty hard on that at this point. They are out of, they're completely out of uh, the title contention. So, it, it, your, te- you know, your Texas for God's sake, like finishing seven and five versus six and six, like that doesn't affect your recruiting at all. And I mean, like it, it, it just doesn't. It's pretty so,
0: brutal it's pretty brutal. I was just thinking about it this morning. Their f- four game stretch. Cause I heard somebody say like Texas might lose four straight games. I mean, they're playing the four best teams in the big 12 back to back to back to back, which yeah. is pretty, that's pretty brutal for that's them. Pretty, so that, that's a tough I think stretch. they, I think they might feel if they lose at Iowa state, which I would not be surprised at all. I think Texas fans might really fe- be feeling sour, but they should probably be able to get a few. I mean, they still have to play Kansas, so they have one more win left, but yeah, for sure. Um, overall, like I think, I think uh, as we've talked about here is it's just a, you know, Texas is a really good team despite their record. Um, I know that's kind of a stupid thing or not a stupid thing to say, but you know, some fans might do like, what well, you are what your record is. I mean, sort of, um, but th- they're definitely a good team that has good talent. They're going through some struggles in their first year, but they presented a lot of issues for Baylor. And I think Baylor responded to a lot of them very well. So it was overall a positive performance, no doubt. Uh, let's switch into TCU uh, before we talk about, how Baylor matches up with CCU, we wanted to talk about, uh, or I wanted to talk with Jeff about about Patterson leaving because Jeff has always been somebody that um, I love talking to about the organization of football. Uh, if you actually go back and listen to our first episode that we did a month or so ago, he talked about how, uh, or excuse me, he you, Jeff, you talked about how, um, what you love about the game is that nobody in and of themselves wins football games. Nick Saman doesn't win games. Alabama doesn't win. Or, you know, the Alabama boosters don't win games. You know, Tua Tagovailoa doesn't win games. The entire organization has to win games together. And I wanted to ask you about this with Patterson specifically because he's been at the top of defensive. He's been a defensive at the top of the defensive minds of college football for a long time now. And I think there's been – I've seen some kind of narrative of like, oh, well, like the game has passed Gary up. Not schematically. I mean, he still no, is definitely absolutely. near of what this – top of what's going on schematically. So I thought this would be a great opportunity for you to talk about like how being one of the smartest defensive minds in college football, who has also been a really good head coach in the past, doesn't guarantee that you're going to have success forever. So what do you think happened there?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to take a little bit different path on Patterson. I know that Baylor fans are – you know rejoicing a little bit over the fact that he's finally gone um i'll i'll leave i'll leave that part of the conversation to other people um and so i'll speak directly to patterson from a football coach and from a what his capabilities are um you know i i the first time that i remember being like blown away by him was it was in it was before 20 it was during the 2014 season and I was getting ready to. I had watched them. You know, I'd watched them a decent amount. But I that was when I was starting to like, really kind of take my next steps into trying to warn the warn the actual game. And I went back and watched them. I think it was Wisconsin. Them when they played Wisconsin the Rose Bowl. Like I went back and like watched that tape. And the performance that he got out of that team was absurd. Like what he what he was able to ex- extract from that team that was limited athletically um, and that was limited in some of their playmakers compared to what they were seeing against Wisconsin just it, it was genuinely elite coaching and he he had a really incredible there were several things that stood out but you know it just that his ability to get that much out of that team at that time was just It just, it really floored me. There's no way to put it. It just floored me. Um, Baylor, you know, as much as I want to, you know, pump up Matt Rule, who's, you know, with the Carolina Panthers, or as as good as I think there's a chance that Dave Aranda could be, or, you know, even going back to Art Bryles, like Art Bryles, Art Bryles never had a game like that. He just didn't. He never had a game where I would turn on the tape and go, every single facet of this team this 85-man scholarship unit is playing as well as they possibly can, and their coach has put them in as good a position as they possibly can. That's that's extremely rare, and Patterson was able to do that. Uh, he was able to do that defensively. I think what really stands out to me about Patterson was he was one of the first coaches, and Aranda spoke about this earlier, and he's you should – Listen to a rant to talk about Patterson because his, his riff on basically lime wire, but for coaching takes, is really kind of <laughs> hilarious. But um, Patterson started calling defenses like offensive play calls. And some, there are, and to give a little bit more background around that, you know, a, a traditionally a defensive play call was something that everyone, all 11 people on the field had to know what that play call was. So, you know, if you get a fire zone call, you would get a, you know a fire zone, and you would usually give a gap number on like where the blitz is going. Okay, but everyone has to know what their responsibilities for are for that one play. So if you have, let's say, a hundred plays in the playbook, you've got to know what all of those individual plays are in your head. You've got to know what the checks are. It makes it very easy to get something messed up. What Patterson started doing at the time was um, he started calling it like a West Coast offense. So in the West Coast offense, if you want, you know, the the John Gruden famous spider. Two Y spider banana, spider Y banana, all that stuff. Like, the reason for that is it's not an individual play call. You're just listing out the responsibilities for every single deployed individual. Okay. Um, they started calling defenses like that. So you would get a three word play call that might be, and I'm going to make this up. Okay. But let's, let's say you got like a, um, Usually, you would list it. You would break it up into three areas: your front, what your run fits are, then what the boundary call is, what the two people are to the boundary, or excuse me, to away to the play strength, and what the two people are towards the play strength. And because they ran so much quarters, which is two safety, two safeties back, they were almost always playing three over two or two over two over one, which means you've got three defenders over two offensive men, or two over one is you've got two def- two defenders over one offensive guy, and then they they tried to get their. Um, linebackers to bail back out if they if it was an obvious pass.
0: Yeah. So I think to help people visually here. So like, let's think of a standard offensive formation. So they're in 11, the offense is in 11 personnel, one tight end, one running back. And let's say they have one, one wide receiver on the left side and two wide receivers on the right side. So essentially you have the front, which would be like your four down linemen, and your two inside linebackers. That would be its own play, you know, play call. You'd have the cornerback and the safety to the single receiver side, which would be like their own little duo play call to the boundary. And then you would have your three guys, you know, your two other safeties and another cornerback that would be to the two wide receiver side. That would be like their own little unit. And Patterson, you're saying essentially he would get, he could give each of them their own little play call. That way, not all of them had to be, you know, all of them were working in concert, but it wasn't like they, the play call encapsulated all that. He could really kind of mix and match depending on what the offense was doing.
1: That's 100% correct. So he's able to mix and match based off of formation and play tendencies from the offensive from the offensive coordinator, and he was able to greatly simplify things. And because he was able to simplify so much in the play call, it meant, conversely, that you were able to gain complexity elsewhere. And the complexity game was they ran some pretty complex pattern matching coverages in the back end. But because they were able to split those calls up, it made it a lot easier for... Um, it made it a lot easier for their safeties and their cornerbacks to be able to say, "Okay, like I'm getting a sky call," which, or that I'm getting a cover two, or I'm getting a two read, or I'm getting a Seahawk call. Like those are all like very generic terms, and we won't go into all the match court, like all the all the different rules around all this stuff. But when you hear that call to your play side, like you know, if you're the cornerback, okay, I've got one of three things. And it's very straightforward. Like, here are the three things that I've got to do in order to make this happen right here. And the ability to simplify that meant that they could play very, very fast. Um, And as long as they weren't busting uh, rules because they they were able to simplify it enough that they knew the playbook really well, then they were able to kind of they were able to run a lot more complex coverages that a lot of schools were not able to do because of the way that Patterson taught it. So Patterson's genius was not part of it was schematic, but really the difference I think for them was the way he taught defense, um, the way he was able to get it installed with them. Um,
0: so, so let me, so this is, Dave Aranda says simple can be sophisticated, right? And what you were just saying is like, this allows for more complexity, but, why is that? Why does the simple call mean that they can play faster? Why does it mean that they can do more complex stuff as opposed to the whole defense calls that most other defensive coaches were using?
1: So, well, there's there's different there's different flavors on all this stuff. stuff. Okay, so, like, Kirby Smart is really well-known right now. Like, Kirby Smart has one-word play calls, all right? Dave Aranda has tended towards that as well, all right? So Dave Aranda, like, Dave Aranda has two play calls that they run. They call one rat, and they call quarters. And you'll get variations on it, because they run an unbelievable amount of checks, but... When they get up on the line, someone's going to say one rat, and everyone knows what that means based off of what the what the uh, what the formation looks like in front of them. They you know that really dictates the play. So why like getting back to that to the question I hear, like well, how can the simple be more complex? In that case, it's if you if you know if you can simplify the rules so that your team your your not your team your individual players don't have to process. That's really kind of the holy grail because. When when you think about reaction times, particularly with a DB, you know, let's say a DB is playing at an off technique at like six yards. Okay, if he has to hesitate, let's say three quarters of a second because he's unsure what his rule is. Okay, in the three quarters of a second that a that a D1 athlete is moving at full speed, your foot is not maybe not on the ground, but maybe that you maybe in that time you've planted your hip and you've gotten your hips past the CB and the play's over. So that difference in the three, like that three quarters may not seem like a lot, but if you can reduce that three quarters reaction time down to a half second to a quarter second, like if you can genuinely do that, you know, it seems like, oh, well, it's just a half second. Well, when it comes to trying to like handle guys out of their breaks or handle guys that are putting their hands on you and trying to get past you. Like that half a second is the difference between you being out of phase covering a guy down the field, or you being in his hip pocket or you being able to get across a guy's face to break up a pass. And so Patterson really worked hard to try to instill a supposed not a supposed, but a, a a complex defense that allowed them to think very simplistically and be able to make very fast snap judgment calls without having to go. What is my rule in this particular thing? If I'm the like, you know, a, let's say you're in a Tampa, not a Tampa two, but like let's say you're in a two read call and you're on the backside. You're on the backside of that, which means you're there's a three over two to the to the play strength, and on the backside maybe there's like a, there's a two over one. Um, So you know if you if you have a one word play call like you have to go through the process prior to the snap like what am I supposed to do here like every every defensive Mm. player typically does that you know um, do you know do I have the flats on this call what what exactly So like an
0: example would be like okay so against this formation you have a one word play call but you have to think okay this week we installed this game plan and I know on this play call against this formation it means I have to do X but when you're able to kind of uh, when you're able to delineate or you know give each different unit their own play call, essentially. They don't even have to go through that process. They just know, I've been given this, which means I have to do this. Is that a fair interpretation of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I think so. So I just – what he was able to do there was – I mean, revolutionary is probably too strong of a word, but certainly evolutionary. Uh, He was the first... I mean, you know, Aranda says this, so it's not me quoting this to you. He was the first person that really started to go after that approach, and it really worked for them. I mean, he put them in the Big 12 from a position that they didn't really have. He outperformed them from a resource perspective, I would say, all the way up until... Uh, you know I don't know their record immediately but I would say at least until 2016 maybe 2018 um, and then to answer your earlier question before we move on to the game from an organizational perspective what I see from them right now is I just I don't see an organization that's in con- like 100% in control of themselves you know at football football requires such a focus in terms of both mental energy but like physical energy in terms of your willingness to work as hard as you can in the offseason around uh, strength and conditioning your ability to be as dialed in as you possibly can how hard are you going to hit on game day you just you you can't do you know you can do to use an nba analogy and i'll use this analogy a ton over the course of the podcast will be The NBA regular season is very very different than the NBA postseason at this point. Everybody knows it. Like NBA regular season, basically everyone gives 80% until the final four minutes, and then everyone walks in, and then everyone goes home for the night. Um, And there's lots of reasons for that. We don't have to debate it, but that's just a fact. And then the NBA postseason rolls around, and everyone is giving maximum effort for 48 minutes. And it's just a completely different game. And um, you almost can't even – they're almost not comparable at this point because they're so different. Um, you can't do that in football. Like if you're gonna roll out and give eighty percent over the course of the game, you're gonna lose by sixty points. And that's not an exaggeration. You cannot play a game with the physicality required of football if you're not locked into that degree at every position over the course of the game. And that's
0: why it's like you can tell like possession by possession. Sometimes like a team will score and go up by twenty one late like even in the fourth quarter, and all of a sudden you can be like, Oh, the other team just quit. And it's not that they're quitting; it's just that all of a sudden they're giving ninety percent effort instead of a hundred. But that difference in football, I mean, it makes all the difference in the world.
1: Yeah, and I think that's yeah, that's it's, that's what I that's what I've seen a lot from them. I think particularly this year, um, they're they have a lot of athletes in terms of talent. If certainly from an eval, I've always been jealous of some, of a lot of the guys that they've gotten. Um, particularly as a Baylor fan, like I'm, I'm impressed with some of the dudes that they have that they've had. Coming in, they haven't developed all of those guys like I think they should. And I don't know, I can't answer the question as to why that is happening. I'm not in the building. I think anyone that is going to tell you that they know the answer 100% is probably just guessing for the most part based off rumors they've heard. But at the end of the day, you can see it. You can see it in their performance. They're just not, that team is not as developed, for example, as Baylor is. And we know all the struggles that Baylor had. In year one of Aranda, the team looks much more focused. Their strength and conditioning is a lot better. They're f- much more bought in for Baylor in year two of Aranda than I see for TCU in whatever year this is of Patterson. And I it's sad for me that it ends like that because I do have so much respect for him as just a pure football coach. I'm trying to take the rivalry stuff out of it and just be as direct as I can about that. Like I, I do hate it for him that it ended with that Kansas State game. Because that just sucks. Like it just does. There's no way to put it, it just sucks. Um he's too good a coach to he's too good of a coach to go out like a bitch like that. And there's just no other way to put it. Like they went out yeah. they went out in such a way where it's like you can tell those kids didn't want to be there last game. Like I didn't even watch the Kansas state game because the highlights I've watched reminded me of a few Baylor games that I won't mention, but it's just, you could tell that those mm-hmm. kids were just like, yeah, we're not here today. And you, from the yeah. opening snap, like that game, that game was over before they snapped before the first kickoff. And mm-hmm. you know, let's, I, let's just move on to the game. Cause I, 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 will also say like, I wish we could, I hate the fact that the one rivalry coming on make. I hate the fact that, um, he went out uh, with the last win in this, and a significant win last year. Like he does, kind of own that record, which sucks for us. Um, but you know, we'll see what we see. I, he does. I will say this in the last thing. He does not strike me as the type of person that is just going to go retire and do TV. Um,
0: well, Kell said Jerry Kell said he's going to be a coach. So I don't know where he do will go, but yeah I, yeah, I think I
1: did hear that. I don't know where he'll end up going, but I just he's too he's too whatever to go. I don't know if it's going to, he's going to end up at like, honestly, the, the place that he should go, and this would be really kind of hilarious. He should go to Bama, like, and be the DC, (laughs) like that, that would be, that would really be kind of incredible. He could be the, the next reclamation project for Saban. He could see how Saban runs the organization. Um, he's the he's the classic guy that Saban would probably just absolutely love to have on staff because you know Matt Rule said this uh, Randa said this like he's a football guy he's an extremely he's an extremely talented coach just from an X's and O's technique schematic standpoint so um, yeah
0: yeah just last thing before before the game do you have any kind of general thoughts of not necessarily with Patterson because who knows you know what was the internal source of downfall there with what caused the organization to crumble but do you have any kind of theory or generic thing you look for when coaches that have been successful for a long time kind of just end up dwindling? Do you Because th- it doesn't really seem like with Patterson it could have been his focus. His focus seems like it was there. So how does an organization kind of lose focus if its coach is still all in?
1: Organizational focus, can't it's not a it can't be 100% top-down driven. Like, that just doesn't work. So, it, you know, and Matt Rule is a real good example of this. Like, Matt Rule went to great lengths to try to cultivate senior leadership. And by, um, by 2019, they really kind of had it. And, you know, there's a story, I, I won't name names, but there was a story about a recruit that a lot of people were excited about. And this person showed up and really wasn't given a lot of effort. And there was a senior on the team that went up and was just like, we're here to get better, and if you want, if you don't want to do that, get your ass off the field. And the guy quit. And most staffs outside of Matt Rule would have gone. No, no, you come on back. We'll get it figured out. You know, we'll do all this kind of stuff. And that kid, that kid, that kid was gone. Um, so. You If you don't have – the, the key to that is not – the key is not necessarily that that kid left. It's that the seniors had enough trust in the coaching staff to make that statement. You know what I mean? Because if the seniors don't trust the coaching staff 100%, they're not going to say that because then what will end up happening is the coach will go, well, you know, we really need him, and all of a sudden the senior looks like a jackass and the freshman's like, well, what are you talking about? I can do whatever I want to. Like The coach said that, like – It requires an immense amount of trust to to be able to make that statement in the moment. You know what I mean? And I don't. It does not appear to me that TCU's senior leadership over the last few years had that level of trust and buy-in with the staff because you can't just like your head coach can't be running around yelling at all eighty-five kids. 365 days a year. It just doesn't work that way, you know. Um, you need you need guys that are telling dudes not to go out on Friday nights in April because it's three it's 3 a.m. and nothing good happens after 12. You know what I mean? Like that sounds really dumb, but like you you coaches can't do that. You have to have senior leadership to like tamp down on some of that stuff. And it just it just didn't seem like to me. That that trust level was there. That is a little bit of a projection. I'll be very clear about that. But when I see that team, that's that's what always stands out to me is that there's that's what you and that's what you can see with a team like Clemson, for example. Like Clemson has elite senior leadership. Alabama has elite senior leadership. Um, Baylor in 2019 had elite senior leadership. As near as I could tell, this Baylor team has really good senior leadership. I you know that just I don't know as much in the ins and outs with Baylor this year, but that's that's what I would say. I noticed the most about when, when staff start to fall off a little bit is they just lose that connection with the upperclassmen.
0: Gotcha. Well, that was all great. Um, we'll do a little bit on the game this week. We're not going to preview this game nearly as long as we did. Um, the Texas game. Uh, I didn't treat this week like a bi-week, but I sort of did. Uh, <laughs> just from a preparation standpoint, because I've watched a lot of TCU this year and I feel like I've watched enough to know that if Baylor has its act together, this game shouldn't be within two scores. Um,
1: well, I'll you know, that,
0: college footballs go ahead. Jeff.
1: Go ahead. I was gonna say, I, That's going to be dependent on whether Duggan and Evans play. Um, it seems from what I've heard, it's the word I was told was um, doubtful. they play for differing reasons Um, i think it's probably very safe to assume that at least one of them won't i don't know i don't really know what's going on with evans and i don't want to speculate on that um it seems like Duggan's foot issue is something that honestly at this point like they're almost certainly not in a position to make a bowl and now that that's out of reach after the um, k-state game like there's no reason to put him out there and just be an immense amount of pain when you can't even make a bowl. And yep. I, I think, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to say that uh, Krill, I think, I can't remember if it's Krill or Kill, but. Um, Kill. Kill. Um, I, I'm not going to say that he needs to sit him down or anything like that. I just, if, if I was in that position and there's nothing to be gained realistically from it, then. Like, are we really going to put this guy through hell to do that? It seems unlikely to me, but I don't know. If both those guys are playing and they're on top of their games, this is, you know, there's a lot of, like, there are a lot of paths for TCU. If one of those guys is playing, it's a lot more difficult. If both of those guys are not playing, um, then it's really it's really a game about whether or not Baylor wants to show up and execute. I mean, it just, it is.
0: My, my impression of this game, um, from a very, like, path to TCU winning this game is, they're going to have to score, and they're going to have to score a lot. Is that kind of how you feel as well? And that that is that why you're saying like Duggan or Evans both probably need to play or one yeah. of them needs to have a great game.
1: Yeah, I like a healthy Duggan. I think is really underrated by the Baylor fan base. Um, he's not healthy right now, so his mobility is way down, and so without that, without the without the threat of that run game, um, so much of what he wants to do and what he's good at, they just can't call. Um, so it it greatly you know even if he's playing and he's not nearly as mobile it's not nearly as good but i do think like, they're going to have to score in this game uh, they have they have a couple of limitations defensively that i just don't know how they get around um and it's just i think that they would barring something bananas like gary puts the ball on the ground four times or you know we, you know there's two blocked punts like you know, it, barring barring a crazy path like that, which is possible, but again, there's a reason we call it the crazy path. Barring a crazy path like that, TCU is going to have to get over 31 points to score in this game, and if they don't have Duggan and they don't have um, Evans, it's hard for me to believe that they're going to be able to put more points on Baylor than Texas or anybody
0: Baylor. else has this yeah, year
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. It just that doesn't that does not seem realistic to me, barring like yeah. a pick six and some stuff like that. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, like you know, college football is crazy, and like every week there are results that that people think, well, you need this crazy thing to happen for them to win, and then it happens. So, like that—that's what makes predicting kind of difficult in this game because you always have to give caveats, and then the caveats happen.
1: You know, and there's someone that we talk ball with. Um, I won't mention his name on here, but you know, he is he's pretty insistent that TCU is probably going to win this game by like 24 points because it's a rivalry game. When you throw out all the you throw out all the rules in a rivalry game, and you don't care about the X's and O's. Um, you know, the reason why TCU always plays Baylor really well is because historically has always had a really good team. Like it's really that simple. Like TCU has really has had a really good team because Patterson's a really good coach and has for a really long time. And you know, one of the things I hope that if you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll learn is that rankings, like AP poll and coaches' rankings, are really terrible at telling you how good a team actually is. Like Iowa State, I don't care if they just lost to West Virginia. Like Iowa State is a top 20 team. Like they're a top 20 team. Texas, I think, is still a top 25 team. I, I mean, I, I I'd view that. Neither of those guys are even close to ranked right now, but it doesn't change how good those teams are. So a lot of times, you know, TCU is rolling in with, you know, oh, their unranked TCU is somehow staying within seven of Baylor. Well, it's because TCU is on the front of their jersey and not Alabama. And if Alabama was on the front of their jersey, they would have been ranked. And that's really all there is to it. So because of that difference, you know, those games have been close. Baylor hasn't beaten them. Baylor has not beaten TCU by more than one possession. I think since '93. Um, is that before you were born? <laughs> that is the year I was born. That was yeah. the year yeah. born. God, I'm old. <laughs> um, so. Um, you know Baylor hasn't beaten them by more than one possession since like 92 93 something like that. And the reasoning for that is TCU has always been really good. This will be the worst this will be the worst TCU team that Baylor will have played in basically 30 years. Mm-hmm. And you know at a certain point your team is bad enough that like all the throw out the rule book stuff probably doesn't super apply unless you do stupid stuff. So this is a like this is this is, you know, that like this is a game where the team Baylor has to go in going we have to play discipline we have to do what we need to do we need to stay within ourselves we have to stay focused all the coach speak that you want to go do but if you go out and you execute TCU just doesn't have a lot of pass to victory in this game short of like converting a bunch of miracle you know punt fakes and onside kicks and like they'd have to generate a bunch of you know I think TCU would have to generate at least two extra possessions to even be in the game, and that's either an onside kick or to be uh, up at least one in the turnover category, or um, something like that. Like they need two to three extra possessions to stay in this game, be offensively. And if they don't have that, then there's just not a lot of paths. Yeah.
0: yeah. So the reason why Jeff and I are so confident about, or you know, confident in our assessment, at least that TCU is bad, especially defensively. I mean, when you look at their a, when you look at just their stats that anybody can look at any sort of defensive statistic is going to tell you that they've just been terrible defending the run all year and i can actually specifically remember watching the smu game uh and messaging y'all uh a a group of friends and i that jeff and i uh, we talked to about football and i was saying wow i'm watching this smu game tc is playing with even numbers in the box and what i mean by that is you know, if SMU had six blockers, TC was trying to play it with six defenders. They're leaving one gap open and hoping that a, a DB can rally to the ball. And I, was, I remember messaging y'all and saying, TC is trying to play with even numbers and they're just getting blown off the ball. And I was like, what is happening here? And that's just been what's, what, that has been what has happened every game. And I want to ask you kind of a two-part question here, Jeff. A, you know, what do you think's happening with their front? And B, uh, and this will be like kind of the only thing we're going to deep dive as far as the units of the game, just in interest of time. But I think if, this is the story of why – I think you'll agree with this, Jeff. This is the story of why TC is so bad this year. Um, so, A, what's going on with their front? And, B, do you think, like, how you talked earlier about how Patterson kind of separates the units of his defense uh, as far as separating the front from the the strong side of the field, from the weak side of the field, do you think that makes it harder for him to – um, make up for the fact that his front is so bad, because he doesn't really have a back plan in his pocket for uh, what happens when your
1: front sucks. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Well, I, I will say this in fairness to him: like, you don't have a lot of option when when your front sucks. Like, it just yeah, you, you kind of don't. You know, at, at a certain point. Defenses have most defensive has what they call make right guys, which is you know at a certain level of the defense, you've got to make the guy in front of you right. If they take a gamble, your job is to make is to make him right. Even if they miss the tackle, you got to make it seem like that's what he was supposed to do within the defensive game plan. Um, Patterson historically has really tried to be a very to be very attacking with his defensive front. Um, in a lot of ways, like I don't I don't really recognize their defensive fronts. In this game, because you know, I, I watched a lot of I watched a lot of the Tech game and I watched a lot of the West Virginia game on recommendation from some TCU people, because I was asking like, what what's what's the most representative version of what this team wants to look like? You know, because I want I, I do want to put them in the best possible light, and I was told first half West Virginia and and Tech, and so watching them in against uh, West Virginia particularly, you know, they they historically have been this very this attacking. Group on the defensive alignment, like these guys want to bust their ass up into upfield into a gap. Um, I don't know. They if, do a lot of slanting. A lot which of, you probably yeah, talk about yeah, a lot of slanting where you know. And we mentioned this a little bit about the Texas preview uh, in Texas review, where it's like you line up in a B gap and then all of a sudden you're jumping over into an A gap and you're trying to get across the guard's face. Like they do, you know. That's what they've done historically. Well, they try to do a little bit of that now, but what I see a lot of in from them against West Virginia was their defensive tackles would line up over. Guard, one of the guard center guards and they would try to engage him and they would get washed 10 to 15 yards laterally down the field and they get washed so badly that their linebackers who were not particularly good I don't think they're as bad as Texas's linebackers but their linebackers get there because their defensive tackles get washed so much it makes their linebackers have to be absolutely perfect and they're not absolutely perfect. So you just end up with these just gaping holes in the middle of the defense. Because what 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 I see a lot of particularly in interior or on zone runs for them is their defensive tackles get washed so bad that as a linebacker, if you're trying to read flow in like twenty five TCU twenty five, this happens to him all the time. He's trying to read flow and the defensive tackle is just getting taken like taken out to dinner. I mean just washed off the face of the earth and at a certain point like you're just running to the sidelines and you don't really know where you're supposed to be because the guy's getting pushed so far down and so what ends up happening for particularly with tc25 to come back to him is like he's on the wrong side of the gap all the time which is the guy's coming up field and he's like he's trying to guess where the guy's going to come from and he can't you know he's really just guessing because the the defensive tackle can't hold up and so He gets on the wrong side of the gap, and so even if he's there, he's trying to make a tackle from a compromised position. And if the line and that ends up what ends up happening there is, even if he gets him on the ground, you're still moving forward and you're gaining four yards. So you know everyone can kind of do it as well as they possibly can, and TCU gives up four yards. And if he's off by a foot because he's guessing, trying to run laterally for twenty yards to get to get to the point of uh, to or to get to the cutback lane, if he's off by a foot the guys running free in the open in the open secondary cuz they don't want to they don't want to bring another guy down if they can avoid it. And so it just it, I don't recall ever seeing a TCU team just be so vulnerable between the tackles. Their defensive tackles just cannot hold up against the run. And so they're really TCU's left with really kind of Uh, Sophie's choice is probably a terrible analogy because that's much more important. But, you know, they're really left with an impossible decision, which is we're going to bring down and totally gap out and tell everyone to attack, which in that case, you are unbelievably vulnerable to a play action. Or we're just going to sit back and hope we can slow you down in the red zone, in which case our defensive tackles are just going to get washed down the field. And (laughs) that it, it just seems like there's not... There's not a lot of good options there. I know what Gary Patterson would do because he's put it on tape this year. The one question for this game for us is we don't really know what he's going to do. We don't really know what TC's going to do when he's not on the sidelines. We think we know, but we don't really know what they're going to do. Um, I My assumption is they would play it pretty close to the way that Patterson would normally play it, but with Patterson not there, there's a little... What is liter- the way that he
0: would normally play it?
1: Patterson traditionally, like against a unit like this, Patterson would roll it, Patterson would roll it down and make, and make GB beat them. Like there's just, he would put those, he put his CBs on an island. I think everyone remembers 2014 where it was just, you know, that 6158 where it's just like, it's either run or it's a bomb on the rail. And that was the only, I mean, it's literally the only play Baylor ran for, you know, four straight hours. It was hand off up the A-gap or a 60-yard pass. <laughs> I mean, that was just the entire <laughs> game plan. <coughs> um, so, against this type of front for TCU, uh, or th- that Bayer wants to run, where they, they want to get people on the line and they want to get people moving laterally in distress, like he's going to, he would if it's him, like I think they're putting people on the line and they're just going, we're going to take away your rollout game and uh, we're going to make you beat us over the top because we think that our um, cornerbacks can, can hang enough to do that. That's typically been the Patterson game plan. I don't know if they're going to try that again this year, but that's what they've done in the past. Um, So it, that's one thing that makes it tough. Well, I think one thing that makes it tough and
0: I mentioned this on Twitter earlier is like when your defensive front sucks, you would give anything for to have one get right guy, as you were saying, but have your best player be an inside linebacker or a safety who can clean up behind them and be a difference maker. The problem is that TC's best player is a field corner. And when your defense sucks, Having a field corner who's really good kind of doesn't. A really good field corner is like the icing on the cake of a good defense. It's not the starting point of a good defense. Um, So I I think that you know it is really nice if they do decide to try and stack the box and kind of just ask Hodges Tomlinson to hold up one v one versus versus Tyquan Thornton. But
1: and they will. They almost certainly will do that. They will almost certainly do that. I'd be shocked if they didn't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I would too. I mean, I think at this point, like, you know, your front is terrible and you've got to roll the dice in some respect. So um, yeah, I think that's as far as we're going to go, as far as um, really analyzing this game. Um, But it it is definitely a situation where TCU's front is so bad um, that if Baylor, kind of like what I talked about against Texas, where Baylor was able to execute just using base offense versus Texas, uh, who, despite the fact that they have bad inside linebackers, their defensive line was much better than what TCU will show. I'd be surprised if Baylor wasn't able to get 90% of this, their yards this game doing something similar. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we talk a lot about it. Um, I mentioned a lot before, nobody can consistently run into a nine-man box. There isn't a running back on the planet uh, that can get yards consistently when a guy's is in his face in the backfield. It's just not possible. So if TCU does roll the dice and puts it on Gary – He'll have to make him pay. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens early on in that game. But uh, I definitely expect them to do that, like you do, Jeff. Okay. So we're gonna finish out with a couple questions that some of y'all sent in on Twitter. Um, I'll throw this one to you, Jeff. Uh, after Gary's interceptions against UT, are you worried that defenses down the stretch might figure out ways to defend him better? I know you and Aranda kind of talked about how both of them are sort of attributable to Texas running new schemes, but we have seen that he's made three interceptions this year and all of them have been kind of, what are you doing over the middle type throws? Um, So yeah, is that something that needs to be watched going down the stretch?
1: You know, we're not, we're not in the, it's a good question. We're not really, we're not in the building. And so we don't really know how it's being taught to uh, Gary from uh, Grimes right now. Um, It's really a question of when they go into the middle of the field it seems like they're calling specific plays where you're reading a guy and Grimes is just assuming the def- what the defense is going to be. So he tells, like, on both those interceptions, Gary was reading a specific defensive player. He wasn't reading a wide receiver. And so the defensive player showed a certain look, which meant that Gary's responsibility was to cut the ball loose, except the coverage wasn't what he thought it was going to be and so if they're going to do you know if 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 that's going to be the way they continue to do those shots in the middle of the field then yeah we're going to see more of those plays because you know better teams are going to are going to be able to look at that and go okay if we give them a certain look we're going to get this particular we're gonna, you know, as defensive coordinator, if I give them this look, we know that we're gonna get this route combination from them, and then I can put somebody in a position to try to rob the ball. And that's really what they, you know, that's what they did. You know, they ran a Tampa two call, which they never do um, outside. Of, they maybe they do on like, um, I'm sure that Texas runs a, t- a Tampa two runs Tampa two on like. Um, two-minute drill but they don't ever run it in a standard in a standard third down typically and they ran that on the second interception you know and and really in essence what they're doing is they're trying to rob they're trying to rob that ball it's a Tampa two call that was really just a raw play um a robber a robber from linebacker excuse me and if they're if that's a long way to say I actually think we probably will continue to see more of the, more of those plays depending on how they're doing that uh, I think that Grimes is very um concerned, it's not the right word um motivated in managing gary because there's still you know he's still it's his first year um he's only had two he's had three big time games i think probably iowa state oklahoma state and texas are probably the three like pressure packed. you know national tv lots of people there you know everything what what else going on here and he's not it seems like he's interested in certain plays kind of cutting him loose but in a lot of ways like on a second and th- eight or something like that, he still wants to manage him and put him in the best possible position to succeed, which a lot of times is like reading one defender rather than trying to read the field. Now, there are certainly plays where he reads the field and he comes back to his primary read and he's done a good job of that, but on plays on both those interceptions, that's really what happens. So it's a long way of saying that I do think that you'll probably see a few more interceptable, interceptable worthy balls. Um, I would be very surprised if he didn't throw at least one pick against TCU. Um, I mean, TCU has lived off the ability to uh, disguise coverages and then rob the expected route dating back to since I was in diapers, seemingly. Like, that's just been <laughs> Patterson's MO. So it's it shouldn't, I don't think it should surprise anybody um, if that happens. I would, particularly against TCU, like, try to make him throw a little bit, like, make him stretch that muscle a little bit more. Put him in a position where he's got to read a couple of coverages and try to do a few things in the field because he's going to have to do that against OU. So... You know maybe we try to get him some more reps in that way. I, I don't know. So, I, I he did not, you know, getting back to Gary like he didn't play great, he played poorly in the first half. Uh, one thing that is, I think Baylor fans should, you know, be happy about is he played a lot better in the second half. You know, against OSU, he struggled in the first half and he really couldn't, he couldn't really pull it together in the second. His footwork was really bad the entire game. He just, he it wasn't there. And I won't say he was checked out or he was rattled or whatever, but once he got going, he wasn't able to pull himself back. That really wasn't the case against um, Texas. He played much better in the second half than he did in the first. You know, his uh, pocket awareness was a lot better. He was able to position himself in the pocket to get some balls off that I thought were a lot better. Um, his accuracy wasn't as good as I would normally have expected. Um, I'm still, I still get nervous about him against man coverage teams like, what um, OU wants to do in a lot of cases, or particularly what TCU wants to do. They'll get away with it against TCU because of how bad their rushing defense is. But, you know, those concerns are still there. But getting back to it, man, I'm kind of rambling on this answer, but um, getting back to it, like, I don't think that, I think TCU uh, Baylor fans should be a little, not worried, but just trust Grimes. Okay, like, being a quarterback is ridiculously hard. Okay, being a quarterback at D1 level is an extraordinarily tough job everyone throws picks. Everyone throws picks. Okay. And mm-hmm. just what I'm, what I would be more, if, if you're wondering how it's doing, like, did he play better in the second half than he did in the first? And the second thing would be after he fumbles the ball or after he throws a pick, is his footwork there, the drive after, is he able to get himself together after the play? Like, that's the stuff I really care about right now. Like is, can he get better? Can he get better on the next play? Can he rack it and move on to the next play and play better? So,
0: Yeah, I meant to bring up, uh, I know we didn't spend too long previewing the TCU game, but one thing that's clear is that Gary still knows how to teach his DBs how to play uh, route combinations. So Baylor definitely is going to want to avoid clear passing downs. Um, It's not a strength of the Baylor team, and it definitely, even though TCU's defense is woeful, they're still good there. Um, And just a quick comment about Gary, it's kind of I talk all the time about how every single thing you do in college football, there's going to be pluses and minuses. Everything's a double-edged sword. There's no pure positives. And one thing with Gary that is a major positive is he clearly takes the coaching and he just, he lets it rip, man. Like he says, all week Grimes told me that we're going to expect to see this and I'm throwing the ball. And that's why nine times out of 10, he's in rhythm, the ball's on time, and they're getting exactly what they want to get. And so I think that is kind of a necessary pitfall to until he's able to be essentially an NFL quarterback that could read, read defenses, every snap, there's going to be these situations where they prepared for one thing and another thing happens and it leads to an interception or an almost interception, but you kind of just live with that considering how, how effectively the offense is executing on every other snap.
1: And I, one more thing I'll say on him, this, this will be an interesting game for him Um Because accuracy is a lot more difficult against against teams that want to play man coverage, okay? Because the holes are not as wide. You know, if you're playing a zone team, the hole, like... If you could process it quickly, the hole is a lot larger traditionally. If you can throw with anticipation, you're good. He's really good at throwing with anticipation. Man coverage teams are a little bit less about throwing with anticipation um, on most routes, but the ability to place the ball very accurately on the body of the wide receiver. So that, that will be the challenge. If you're looking for the, like, where could it go wrong, there's a chance that Gary could have a bad game in this game. So um, I, I don't think he will, but there, there's absolutely a chance he could do it going against these, you know, very, very good uh, TCU DBs. And as bad as the front is, they're, you know, their defensive backs are not that. So.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, and just one more quick question. Um, what's the game plan against Quentin Johnston? Uh, do you just live with big plays like Baylor did against Nakua?
1: I think it really depends on whether or not Duggan's playing or not. I think if if Duggan is playing, they will... I think they'll probably try to give him a little bit more respect. Um, If he's not playing... um, I mean, Aranda's path for newer QBs is the same now, and it will be forever, which is light him up and make him deal with it. So they will... um, you know, if, if it's if it's not Duggan, they're going to pressure the hell out of the quarterback and they're going to make him make big-time throws consistently throughout the course of the game. And if he hits a bunch of those, Baylor's going to be in trouble. But Arand is, uh, what Aranda and Roberts are going to say is, I don't think you can hit, if we make you make, if we're going to give you 10 of these shots, I don't think you can hit more than five of them. And yeah. we're just going to heat you up. And if you hit three or four, congrats. I don't think you can hit seven or eight. And so yeah. that's that That would be my guess. Now, if Duggan is in, then it's a totally different ballgame. Um, and I think they do play a little bit more conservatively because if Duggan is in, he's certainly not going to be mobile enough to present a significant threat in the run game, at which point then you know that they're only real – their only real path forward is going to be for him to be very accurate on those uh, intermediate to long routes, at which point you're probably trying to play a little bit more safe to, to bottle that up because you can key. If he's not involved heavily in the run game, which it doesn't seem like he will be even if he plays, then you can key enough off of, particularly if Evans plays or not, like, one of the things is a side note on Evans. Like, it's really clear that they want Evans to run gap scheme stuff because he has a hard time picking the hole he wants to be in. So they do a lot of inserts with him, which means like they're going to follow, they're going to follow a guard in on power, they're going to follow a tackle, uh, tight end in on the insert of the weak blocker. They do a lot of that with Evans so that they can make it very obvious where he's supposed to go. Because once he gets into the hole and he gets going, he's genuinely elite. But his vision at the line is not as good. Um, so. The um, that's a long way of saying like it, it'll be a little bit easier for them to guess if Duggan's in what the run play is coming and I think that's why that offense has struggled a little bit more recently. Um, but if Duggan's out, like if Duggan and Evans are out, then the game plan is just really simple. Like I mean, everybody knows, which is attack the run, attack the run, attack the run. And if for some reason it's not a run, bypass the running back and hit the QB and just make them hit the big plays consistently. Um, so, yeah.
0: I, th- I think that's right. Um, yeah, we had a question from Jay who asked us about the difference between Duggan and Morris. Uh, I don't really know.
1: I don't know enough about. I, I don't know enough about him to really say. Like, I just, you know, when you uh, when a when a when a QB gets pulled in off the shelf like that and inserted, you know, you're not the game plan's very small. Okay, you're you're usually not you're not curating anything to his specific performance or his abilities. It's a lot of like, you know very generic one-on-one plays. You know, the things we talked about last week where it's, you know, our base plays are these 20. We want to run... We want to rep outside zone or wide zone or iz or Power or Dart or, you know, something like that. Like, you know, he can run the staples, but that's it. Yeah. And so it's just... Well, you know, we'll have to see. My guess is on it. If I had to guess, if I had to guess, I doubt we see Duggan in this game and that they've probably spent most of the week prepping him for a new game plan. That's probably the biggest issue that Baylor could have going into this game is it's a new QB with a bunch of stuff that Duggan normally doesn't execute. That seems like the most likely path forward to me if I'm them. Um, I just don't, you know, if Duggan doesn't have his rushing ability, I don't know that I would want to roll him out against this Baylor defense.
0: Okay, uh, so Jeff and I are going to finish off with our predictions real quick. I'll start us off this time. Um, I just don't think this game is going to be close. I know that's probably whatever Baylor fan feels and probably whatever national prognosticator, even somebody who doesn't even really know that much about the teams, probably feels the same way. But I think the consensus is right here in the respect that TCU's front, defensive front is so bad uh, that Baylor should, barring – fumbling twice and throwing two two interceptions and having a punt blocked should pretty easily get to 31, 34 points in this game. There's definitely a path for TCU to get there. I just think it's very unlikely. Um, This is a game that Baylor should be up by 14 points entering the fourth quarter, I think. Uh, That's kind of like my bar of what I'm expecting in this game. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty bad by the fourth quarter, especially as Baylor starts to lean on them. I just think you see Baylor start to out execute them. It wouldn't be surprised to see me, uh, excuse me, it, it would not surprise me to see this game sort of close at halftime. Maybe like Baylor goes in leading 20 to 14 or 20 to 17 or something like that. Um, but I think Baylor just kind of is able to lean on them throughout the game. Ends up being something like 45 to 17 or something like that. Um, Abrams' health was pretty clearly in question last week. It'll be interesting to see if they can get him some rest. I think a lot of fans would like to see Tay McWilliams at running back this week. But anyway, I think this is very much a game that Baylor should win by 21 points or so if they're rocking full, full, uh, full gears. But who knows? We'll see.
1: Uh, what are your impressions, Jeff? So there are two teams where I can't give my honest opinion. That's going to be TCU and A um, I, 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 and <laughs> I like I've got, I just got too much history. So like, you know, my assumption is that Gary Patterson from you know, is going to rise from Hades and call the game probably from like a walkie-talkie behind a tree uh, that's like 500 yards away. He's going to get the plays in. He's, you know, he's just going to be able to get it figured out, man, because he's Gary Patterson, and that's what he's been able to do. Um, You know, if, you know what, screw it. I'm going to say TCU 44, Baylor 24. And I'm going to go with that, and you're looking at me like I'm out of my mind, but I just, I'm not not tempting fate on this one until we know know what the hell's going on with Evans and Duggan. Like, I'll say this. If both those guys are out, if both those guys are out, you can invert that score. Okay? And we'll say 45-24 Baylor. If either of those guys are in, it's probably like a close TCU win, and if both those guys are in, it's probably like a 20-point TCU win. That's what I'm. You know, okay. I'm, no, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I'm not tempting fate with this one. I've been to too many TCU and too many A and M games where I thought Baylor might have had the better team to watch us lose in painful fashion, and I'm not. I I, I just can't do it. I can't. I can't go there. Too many bad memories.
0: Okay. Well, something you all should know is that Jeff and another friend of ours are very much in the belief system of. um you have to reverse jinx or whatever it is. You're not allowed to predict a win or it also can't happen. So I'm not gonna say don't take Jeff seriously here, but um, I don't know, you judge for yourself whether he really thinks that's gonna happen based off everything he said for the past hour. Uh, But we'll see. (laughs) Um, Jeff, uh, I know you got your work emergency and thanks for sticking on for an hour. Uh, Hopefully people enjoy this. Uh, We've gotten a lot of good feedback. I know we both appreciate it a ton. Uh, Thanks a bunch. Hopefully see y'all in Fort Worth on Saturday. Jeff, have a good time with your dad at Army Air Force. All
1: right. See y'all.
0: Bye.